You're listening to the Enneagram and Marriage Podcast. I'm your host, Krista Harden, and I'm so glad you showed up for our relationship chat today, as well as for you and your people. We're all about living intentionally here so you can experience joy and balance in your relationships once again or for the very first time. Be sure you hang with us on our social media platforms. And if you like research like I do, make sure you check out our website at enneagramandmarriage.com for our weekly newsletter, freebies, and so much more, as well as at Instagram and Facebook. We have so many goodies to share with you. Let's dive right in together. Hey guys, thank you so much for joining us for an episode with internationally renowned teacher and Enneagram master, affectionately dubbed the Enneagram godmother, Suzanne Stabile, to talk about stances in marriage today. Not only do we get the privilege of working today on air with a master teacher like Suzanne, who has co-authored the best-selling The Road Back to You, as well as her other amazing books, The Path Between Us, all about relationships and all also her journey toward wholeness along with the study guide, I really want you to know we're excited because as Suzanne has said in previous interviews with others, and I know she edited Sean Palmer's book and we got to talk to him about stances a bit, she reminds us that stance work is very critical to marriage and to just life balance because we talk often about if you're not familiar with stances or even if you are for a brief refresher, we talk a lot about these centers of intelligence, the thinking, feeling, and doing. But today we're diving into what happens when these centers get repressed. So I want you to know each type has a way of working through this, of acknowledging their stance and of trying to balance with their spouse as much as possible. So we'll talk about that with Suzanne today. And I just want to make room for this extra deep and heartfelt episode because you know we're trying to be in our hearts with Suzanne and she's a prolific Enneagram too. So we want to be open to this and I want to invite you since it's a longer episode to even take it in two pieces if you need to. Just don't rush it and just enjoy being with us. That's the stance I took when I was with Suzanne and I don't regret it because I gained a new nugget for my work, but more importantly for my family that I felt like I could bring home. And you know, for me, that's sometimes a byproduct. I forget sometimes. This podcast is also supposed to be about all of us, not just my clients or the listeners, but just we're all supposed to be in it together. So it was a, it was a joy for me to get to learn something I could really immediately take home and bring in or at least make room for in my family. So I hope you get that today. And I hope that you have such a wonderful time journeying with us on today's show. And thank you so much for doing your work. I know you know this, but you doing your shadow work, you shining brighter out there together truly makes the world more beautiful and a safer place for us all. So thank you. And let's dive in. Thank you so much, Suzanne, for coming back to the ENM podcast. Happy to be here. I'm all about making uh, a way with the gifts I have for marriage to be all that it can be. Well, we are just so grateful to have the wonderful Suzanne Stabile on. You are known by so many as the godmother of the Enneagram. And today you are gifting us with treasures about stances. So thank you so much. You're welcome. We'll see if they're treasures. Let's wait and say that at the end. (laughs) Yes. And we'll let our people email us. (laughs) No, I believe in it and in you. And you know what? We want to hear just some backstory about you a little bit first for those probably very few guests who don't know you. We would love to just hear a little bit about you and your family. 
Okay. My husband is a former Roman Catholic priest Mm -hmm. and I was a single mom with three children and he and I, he left the priesthood not to marry me, but we did get married. He adopted my three and we had a fourth and they now range in age from 34 to 44. Um, we worked together for 38 years. We've been married for 35 and we now have all of our children went away and they all came back to the Dallas Fort Worth area. So our whole family's here. Um, our children with their spouses, we have nine grandchildren and we're about to have another one. Oh my God. Yeah. There are 19 of us and we get together, um, probably ever every four or five weeks and all the cousins are close and my children are really good to each other's children. So sometimes Joe and I look at all of that and say, well, if that's all we accomplished is this family mm-hmm. of humans who treat one another well and love one another well, then that would be enough. It really would. That's yeah. such a beautiful legacy. Wow. I think so too. And I, uh, a lot of people say to us, because Joe and I are still so uh, obviously deeply in love with one another, along with loving one another. Mm-hmm. Lots of people say to us, you're so lucky. And that is really offensive to us mm-hmm. because it isn't luck. We worked hard to have the communication we have with our family and to uh, learn how to parent adult children and how to grandparent grandchildren, and we work hard at our marriage. Mm. And I don't have any judgment about people who aren't working at their marriages because it requires tools. Mm. And not all humans or couples have an opportunity to get those tools and learn how to use them. And it's tricky. It's hard and it's tricky. Mm. Um, I think it'd be really dishonest if I didn't say that my first marriage was not the right marriage for me. Mm. And I learned a lot in that marriage. And that is its own gift Mm. to have learned well, I think. Um, So yeah, Yeah. all that. That's a lot. Yeah, it is, but it's real. And that's what we want on this podcast. We never want people to um, feel like they're alone out there when they're struggling with being a single parent, a blended family, to be able to hear from somebody who says, you know, I've walked that journey. You're saying humbly, but also I think, you know, proudly in a good way, we have been doing our work and we are so blessed to see the fruits of that. Yeah. And I think you're inviting our listeners to be part of that too today, which that's, that's awesome. Yeah. It's work. And we've learned a lot because we were committed to the work and to our children and It's interesting to me to watch because our children parent a lot like we did. Hmm. And they picked up a lot of things from childhood that we did that they now do with their children. And I'm not, I don't know if we even ever thought about it, but I'm sure we wouldn't have expected. Mm. Yeah. You weren't saying this is the way, but they learned something good. And so they're passing on a lot of these gifts and tools you guys had. And it really made me want to ask this big question of what do you think about when couples say like, I want my spouse to change. And yet we're also being reminded regularly, like we can only do our own work. How do we navigate those waters when we are desperate for our spouses to change? Yeah, that's hard. Yeah. And and I think One of the things we all need to figure out as soon as we can is, and what if they don't change? 
here's what here's how I wish things would be and here's how I wish you would be the other and what am I going to do if that doesn't happen mm-hmm. because if you don't if you aren't careful then you say things and push for things that you don't get mm-hmm. but you get other intended unintended consequences mm-hmm. that aren't always good so I I think we have to be careful about expectation. I do uh, quite a bit of work in the recovery community, and they are um, uh, famous for saying every expectation is resentment waiting to happen. Mm. And I don't think we want our hopes, which seem to be expectations, to end up causing resentment because then you have that to carry to. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I don't think it's just the type one who struggles with resentment. I think even as we've been chatting, you're like, some people get envious or, uh, you know, resentful. And I know that helped me a lot when my husband said, reduce your expectations of me and you're going to see a lot of joy. And at first I was really upset. And even since then, he's challenged that a little bit by saying like, you're allowed to have expectations for me. Uh, but, but it was really meaningful at the moment. And Mm -hmm. when it, there's things you don't expect, but the good news is there's also things that you don't expect that they do bring you. Right. And I think sometimes we avoid doing the work on ourselves that we know we need to do by trying to get our spouses to our partners to um, do, do work that makes me feel better about me. Mm. Oh yeah. Mm. And the only way to get to that is for me to do my work and feel and believe that I'm doing what I can do today. And then again, tomorrow and again, the next day. Mm. And I, I, sometimes I feel like I'm cheating a little in talking about marriage because I am so deeply in love with Joe. And I still can hardly wait for him to come home from the church. I And I have always felt that way. And I think rather than us trying to change one another, we instead focused on having really good, solid priorities. So... This is a sample of what that means. 100% of the time, if I call Joe, he answers. 100%. If he calls me, I answer. And in order for that to work, we have to be mindful of each other's schedules for the day because we both have a lot happening. Joe is pastoring at a big church. We both have a lot happening. And we um, also have to give space for... If the expectation of if I call Joe will answer doesn't happen, then am I going to talk first or listen first? And if I choose to listen first, then it generally um, prevents a lot of missteps and judgment on my part. Mm, Great. So I know that God is Joe's first priority and that I'm next and that the children are next. And actually work doesn't come until after me, the children and the grandchildren. And that doesn't mean he doesn't go to work or if he has a funeral or a wedding, like he does all the things that he's supposed to do. Mm -hmm. But those priorities are all always on the table. Mm -hmm. And I think we're trying to, um, the same priorities are true for me. It is at times difficult for me not to have Joe as my first priority Mm -hmm. instead of God. And that's not a fun thing to say, but 
I'm not going to waste your time or mine with not saying what's true or your listeners. Like, you know, life's busy and everybody's got stuff to do Mm -hmm. and I'm better. Yeah, I'm better. But he is just, when we hadn't been married very long, we were living in a, Joe's a Methodist pastor. uh, And so our history is living in parsonages until, you know, we got far enough in the system and big enough churches that we were able to buy our own house and things Mm -hmm. like that. But um, I remember one time uh, in our first appointment, so it was way back. <laughs> and I said, Joe, if Jesus came to the door and knocked and he said, uh, Joe, I want you to get your things and come follow me. What would you do? And he said, he, he looked at me so puzzled and he said, well, I'd get my things and go. <laughs> and I said, no, 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 you're not understanding what he said. He didn't say get Suzanne and the kids and come follow me. He just is asking you. And Joe said, I understood that. And that has been the measure since for me to try to live into. If Jesus came to the door and said, Suzanne, get your things and follow me. Would I say, okay. Mm. And um, I don't know. You're you're being honest. You're like, I want that. I, I want that. But it is hard because you have such a passion and a love for your family. Yep. And I wouldn't just say no, but I would say, we need to talk. Like, do, do you know about all my people? Yes. Because they need me. <laughs> and I'm serving you over here anyway, doing this. So why, what, what is it? But it's just an important question that is, that teaches me mm-hmm. a difference in Joe and me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm not threatened by it. Mm-hmm. I'm not any of that because Joe also says God cannot be anything other than faithful. Mm-hmm. So I'm trusting then in the moments when God is my first priority. And and I've done okay. I've traveled more than I wanted to because I believed it was mine to do. Mm-hmm. If you know me well or you know my work well, then you know that the question of the day for me every day is what is mine to do. Yep. Mm-hmm. So I don't I don't want this to be dramatic. I just want to say I think having priorities is really important and they're always tested. Mm. And and you really letting our audience know like when you're being challenged and you're wanting your spouse to change, look at those priorities and see where right. they're at because if God is at or near the top, it's going to be it's going to be different and I think it's going to be better because you're able to say I can release control of my spouse a little right. bit. And I've really struggled with that as yeah. I mean, every day. It's not like doing Enneagram work or being a therapist has changed that. It's just more obvious to me that I struggle with it. So thankfully, I have a faith walk that I could trust. And I think you're you're saying you and Joe are working at that. Like he's following God. So if Suzanne or the kids or grandkids disappoint him, he has he has a faith life and a security that can help him to continue to be faithful husband and father and grandfather. So yeah, yeah all of that is true. And yet it, it is um, it's difficult for some Enneagram numbers to be less controlling. Mm. We are not all nine numbers, equally controlling numbers and uh, nines happen to be the least controlling. Wow. So it's modeled for me a lot. And you because, bring a lot of that to us. I feel your nine husband when I yeah. interview you, you, you guys are just so one flesh. Pretty much. Yeah. <sighs> and we worked at it. Yeah. 
Yeah. And I think anytime you're in a relationship with anybody, your children, your next door neighbor, your spouse, your parents, Mm -hmm. if you think you can change the other person, Mm -hmm. that uh, that is life lesson number one, Mm -hmm. work on you Mm -hmm. and be the holiest, the holiest and healthiest person you can be, because that's really all you can do. And uh, Joe and I had a mentor of his when he he went to seminary at 14 and was with the Vincentian fathers for 26 years. And he had a mentor during those years who we both loved so much. His name was Father Oscar Miller. Mm-hmm. And one day Joe said, Oscar, what is holiness? I'm not sure I know what that is. He said, oh, that's easy. Holiness is having an open heart and pure intentions. Wow. And he said, you know, everybody can do that. And so it's a good check for me when I'm getting controlling about other people. Is my heart open and are my intentions pure? Mm-hmm. And frequently the answer is, mm, this is really kind of selfish because this is just how I want things to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's very honest. And I think you're really naming some of the depths that most of us go through. And I like how you even said, not all of us though. Some of us even have to work from the opposite end. But as we've talked in the past, and I've heard you talk, uh, sometimes even our instincts or subtypes can be part of that, right? Where we're really Mm. wanting control more in our one-to-one instinct. Maybe we've had a trauma in the past. Have you noticed that shift for you over the years? First of all, let me just say that I think Hurley and Donson are the unsung heroes of the Enneagram. Mm. That's where I got interested in stance work. And um, yeah, so that. Second, I would say that if you don't know this, Joe and I do not teach without saying three things. Everybody needs a therapist. Everybody needs a spiritual director. And everybody needs a contemplative prayer practice. Mm -hmm. And that's the baseline to work from. And so if you really, really want to do life well, then we believe those three things are necessary. Mm. So I'll probably come back to that in a minute. So uh, the three subtypes or instinctual variants are sexual, social, and self-preserving. And I don't uh, use one-to-one much instead of sexual because sexual doesn't mean sex and sexual energy is more intense than one-to-one. So I teach it by talking about a three-layer cake. And you have the same amount. Everybody has the same amount of batter. And your cake may be uh, a really thick layer and kind of a medium layer and then a small one. Or you might have a really thin layer and the other two divided. It could go all kinds of ways. I um, always was social dominant. So I was social and then the biggest layer of my cake Mm -hmm. and then sexual and a little tiny bit of self-preserving. And interestingly enough, I, I, I don't have, we don't have time to talk about this today, but I, Mm -hmm. I think there's a good chance that given the time to do the work, I or somebody else who does it could find out that there are generational issues with subtypes and that my generation, baby boomers, Unfortunately, many of us have uh, a very thin layer of self-preserving. So I live in Dallas, Texas, and there are places all around us that have been built in the last 10 to 12 years Mm -hmm. all around those metroplex that are for people, mine and Joe's age, to move to. Mm -hmm. And that has to do with a lack of Mm self-preserving. 
along the way. Wow. And why many of them? Do you think that's because of the war and the effects of that? I think that's part of it, but I think a bigger part could very well be that it's because of World War II Mm. and our parents Mm. and uh, the Great Depression for some of us, our parents went through that Mm. and they wanted us to have what they didn't have. And so they gave us probably too much, Mm. not in a spoiled kind of way necessarily, you know, not that kind of stuff, but maybe a little too much security and too much, too much. And so I'm pretty sure I'm right about that generational thing, but we'll see. Yeah. No, I love Uh, that. Yeah, that's helpful. So um, Joe was also social dominant and then sexual and then self-preserving, but more balanced in the three, not balanced, but more balanced than me. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was teaching in Austin, which is a three and a half hour drive from here. And uh, it was the day of the Kentucky Derby. It's one of Joe's favorite days of the year because we have a friend who, um, close friends, who lived just west of Fort Worth and they have horses. And uh, John is Joe's horseback riding buddy. And I was going to be teaching in Austin, and that meant that Joe was free to go ride horses all morning, stop and eat barbecue on the way home, and come home and watch the Kentucky Derby Mm -hmm. And while I was doing something else. So um, I was teaching in Austin, and my two daughters were with me, and uh, I always travel with somebody, but sometimes, uh, once or twice a year, we try to turn it into a chance for the three of us to get away. Mm -hmm. And um, Joey, who is my oldest and eight daughter, It was far. I'm not good with distances, but the back of this room was quite far from the platform where I was teaching. And Joey started walking from the back and she just kept walking toward me and walking toward me. And then she came up the steps onto the platform and she closed my notes and said, daddy's had a heart attack. We're leaving right now. And in the trip, the three and a half hour trip from Austin to the hospital in Arlington, Joe thought he was having a heart attack and drove himself to the hospital. And if he had not, it would have been a very different outcome. Mm -hmm. So men who try to tough out things need to listen to me. Um, And um, during that time, my dominant center changed. But I had never read about that. I had never um, heard anybody talk about that. And so I, it took about three weeks maybe for me to figure out what had happened. Joe was just uncomfortable. Uh, Things seemed a little weird between us. And I realized that my subtype changed in that trip from Austin to home to sexual. So then I was sexual, social, and then Mm self-preserving. Self-preserving was not bigger at that time. It is now. Mm -hmm. Uh, But sexual was really big. And um, ultimately, Joe said, you are... uh, making me a little crazy. (laughs) When we sit down to watch a movie, you watch me instead of the movie. Mm -hmm. You wake up and check on me during the night. Mm -hmm. You call more than you used to during the day. Uh, And there's, I'm okay there. We both know that. Mm -hmm. So we got to figure this out. And uh, I said, okay. And I ended up going to therapy. I'm adopted. And so abandonment's a thing for me. And, um, you know, we're all very complicated and very complex. Mm-hmm. But um, I that was, uh, I don't know, maybe eight years ago. So um, the cohort 
that you know, I have an Enneagram cohort that meets for a year, four weekends. And um, the cohort that I was doing the last year of COVID, where we could finally meet in person, I teach subtypes the fourth session, third, I think. And uh, I just said to them, would y'all be interested in doing a study with me? It would mean we'd need to get together uh, once a year for a few years. Mm-hmm. I want to know how many people's and how many of you are, I said to them, how many of your subtypes changed during COVID mm-hmm. and what they changed to. And I want to know if you know why. And I want you to ask around and see what you find from other people. Mm-hmm. My theory was that subtypes changed during COVID, many to self-preserving. Sense. It does make sense. Mm -hmm. It's not proving to be true so far, but I don't have a huge segment of people that I'm working with. It is proving to be true that subtypes change, Mm -hmm. but the majority as of this moment, not, well, the majority is subtypes is uh, self-preserving, but it's not a big enough majority to say, well, that's Mm it. Okay. Yeah. Lots are also to sexual. Mm. And social. Okay. And then once I started listening to them, it's like a five said to me, I have way more social than I ever had before because I got so lonely during COVID. And everybody thought fives were going to just love COVID and the restrictions and being at home and working from home and all that. That's not true either. So a lot to be learned in Mm. all of this in terms of the levels of the way that the Enneagram can explain us to us which is so helpful. You can look and say, there are certain markers in your life that might be really, like you said, your husband's was were a little more balanced than yours and you're doing your work and you went back to therapy. So it was a good space for you to say, like, how can I come back to balance? Yeah. Well, I, it was a, essential, I think. And, but we, you know, we've had the same therapist for 20 years. Mm. So we go and don't go and, you know, all, all stuff. Sometimes we go when we need to, and we certainly no longer go every week. We haven't done that for years. I don't know why it's so difficult to teach people that having the right third person in the room or in terms of how to handle your job or all the things. I, 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 I have a tendency at times to behave really badly, but I don't ever do it in front of the therapist. Hmm. And so once we get there and everybody settles down a little bit, and by badly, I mean, I'm just, you know, irrational and, yeah, you know, that, the stuff. Absolutely. I don't do that in front of a therapist who wants, I don't need to pay somebody to watch me do that. And so Joe and I walk in the office and everything changes just by being there because we know we're going to be, we're going to listen better and not hold on to, I got to have my way and all the things. To me, that seems like everybody would think I'm signing up for that. Yeah. Yeah. Because you automatically get a lift in your spirit and encouragement right? and hearing you're not alone. And like you said, it just washes the slate clean more to say, like, if I was that third person, like coming out of myself a bit here, would I want to see me railing about something? Right. So, um, so I love that. And to me, that also says you've been doing your work over the years, because I think that many points, many of us would rail. And I, I know that about myself and my clients, uh, sometimes they don't see that. And I know there's still value, but I love it when they do, because like you said, it's just 
oh, it's a beautiful thing because couples can do more together. So it's nice when you can really get that lift. And everybody's just so blessed to hear you today say there are going to be shifts. You know, there are going to be seasons and you've got to do your work. Now, your book that we've just been loving over here has been such a gift to our audience. And you talk a lot about stances. And so I wanted to just maybe have a little sprinkling of stance conversation with you so that we could really remind our audience. I've heard you say that you believe stance work is really powerful in marriage. Mm. Okay. Well, let me start with saying that I think the the primer for relationships is the path between us. It's everything is laid out for you and it has a lot to for everybody. And it has a lot to do with communication. If we can't get that part down, then things just stay messy. And I would agree. And that's your green book. I'm just saying for some who are looking at this as which book is this? This is came out in what, 2018? Yes. Okay. So that book is phenomenal. And as you're saying, that's groundwork for couples. Right. So when, but before you start to do deeper work, which I hope you'll do start with, if I want this person who I love to hear me, then I need to say things this way and not this way. And that's on charts in the path between us. Like I made that so easy. Yeah. <laughs> All you have to do is turn the page. That's so helpful the for number. us thinking type. Right. Thank you. Right. <laughs> and think, okay, I don't communicate that way. So I need to really work on that. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to give you an example. I said to Joe years ago, you know, I realize that I get to do things my way a lot, but I don't want that to be the the determinant factor for our marriage. I want you to say what you want. So one of the first things we learned is for me to stop saying, don't you think, don't you wish, don't you agree? Because for a nine who's conflict avoidant, and that's a finish the sentence, it's not really an honest question. Mm -hmm. Then they say, sure, which is a completely different thing than what do you think? Huge. It's huge. Huge. And it's Huge for nines. That's a communication out there. So that's really good info. And that's just one little example of how to communicate. Mm, I like that. And for the Michigan, Minnesota, anyone in the Northern US, it's, you know, and that's the same thing. We don't want to always follow up with, you know, you know, right. Right. You're leading in to this is my opinion. You better agree with it. Right. Well, not even you better agree with it, but if you have lazy thinkers, which is ones, twos, and sixes, then they'll say, oh, okay. Nines will say, okay, because they're conflict avoidant. If communication is the thing, three, sevens, and eights don't do paragraphs well. So they're bullet point people. If you want to communicate with them, then use bullet points, Mm. not paragraphs. Mm. And once you pick up some of those things, then it's easier to do the deeper, harder work. Mm -hmm. So to introduce stances uh, a little bit, Mm -hmm. there are three centers of intelligence. When Gurdjieff was doing his work in the 1940s, he's the modern grandfather of the Enneagram. And uh, he was in Europe doing his work, uh, kind of bringing the Enneagram alive again, because it's thousands of years old. Mm -hmm. Um, There was also a man in England whose name is Maurice Nicole. And he wrote, today it would be called a white paper, but in those days, they these papers were published in journals and, you know, professionals read them and agreed or didn't agree. And um, he wrote a paper that said, there are three centers of intelligence and they are thinking and feeling and doing. 
If you put Maurice Nicole's work on top of the Enneagram, if you just laid it right on top, then what you get is three numbers in a row that are feeling dominant, three in a row around the circle that are thinking dominant, and three that are doing dominant. That says a lot when a, th- a theory put on top of the Enneagram matches the Enneagram and fits with it in that way of triads. Karen Horney, German-American, um, in the 1940s, I think 1947 to be exact, but that could be wrong, mm-hmm. um, said, you know, there are three kinds of people, people who move toward other people, people who move away from other people, and people who move against other people. And if you put Karen Horney's work on top of Maurice Nicole's work on top of the Enneagram, then what you find out is that in each of the triads that are two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, one, thinking dominant, feeling dominant, or doing dominant. If you if you lay her work on top, then in each one of those groups of three, you get one person who moves toward, one that moves away from, and one that moves against. Now that's cool. astonishing. So for me, that just reinforces that the Enneagram is true and that Maurice Nicole is correct. And I've lived enough to know that if you use all that with the Enneagram, they're all correct. So I no longer say moves against because I've had the opportunity to teach so many people, so, so many, and they find uh, moving against to be offensive and inaccurate. And I agree with them. So I now uh, have reframed a bit what Karen Horn I said, and I just say that they stand independently and it feels like they're moving against us. Mm, that is helpful to hear. So what happens with the first work, Maurice Nicole's work, is you find out if you're a five, six, or a seven, that you are thinking dominant. And what that means is that when you take in information from the environment, your first response is, what do I think? For twos, threes, and fours, your first response is, what do I feel? And for eights, nines, and ones, Mm -hmm. your first response is, what am I going to do? If, though, you look at Karen Horney's work, what you find out is that of those three centers... One is dominant, one supports the dominant, but one is repressed. And your repressed center uh, became that, they say, teachers that went before me that I respect, between the ages of seven and 11. And what that means is quit using one of the three and you just started using two. So I'm going to use my number as an example because that's easy. I'm a two on the Enneagram, which means I'm in the feeling triad which means I'm feeling dominant along with threes and fours. I take in all information from the environment first with what do I feel, Mm -hmm. followed by what am I going to do about that? Mm -hmm. Because doing supports feeling for me. Mm -hmm. Thinking since I was seven-ish has kind of moved back Mm -hmm. and I haven't used it as much, which is why it's called my repressed center. Mm -hmm. It hasn't been used as much, but it also, because it hasn't been used, hasn't been harmed much. And so it's the purest part of me. So when I bring up thinking, it's the purest part of me because it's not all beat up and it hasn't adapted and changed and adapted and changed. And then if I do my work, I can use each of those three centers for its intended purpose instead of it just being messy and um, ineffective. Hmm. So let's work with your number just so we get a little another example besides me. Yeah, let's work with seven. So you are thinking dominant, and that means with fives and sixes, you take in information from the environment first with what do I think. Mm -hmm. 
As a seven, you follow that with what am I going to do? Because you're feeling repressed. Definitely. Great that it's definite. But I bet you, without you talking about it, 80 to 90% of your audience would not believe that you're feeling repressed. Right. And this is a safe space for me, but I love that you're reminding us that there's a pureness to that repressed space. Is that why they would experience that? Well, you are um, a people person who happens to be a seven rather than a seven who happens to really enjoy people. And so you are a good communicator and you're curious about people. Mm -hmm. And so it appears that you have feelings about people. And what you do have is repressed feelings because you're a seven and you do most of life with thinking about something and then doing it mm-hmm. and then think about something else and then just do it. Um, our son, Joel, that works with us full time is a seven with, uh, and he's of course thinking and doing supports that. But our daughter, Joey, who's our, our oldest is an eight mm-hmm. and she is doing and then thinking. And we used to say in the family, if you put those two together, it's like nitro and glycerin because there's no feelings anywhere. And they're just thinking and doing and doing and thinking and thinking and doing. Now, I want to be very clear to say that the fact that I am thinking repressed doesn't mean I don't think. I have advanced degree. I've met, I've written three books. I have done a lot of new and creative work, I think. But primarily, I think about relationships. That takes up a great deal of my thinking space. And so I have to really work on bringing up thinking for all the other things that I need to do. And here's an example. My inclination uh, as a two is to help people. So in the old days, I would walk towards somebody and see what they needed and help them and have great feelings about that Mm -hmm. and then do it again and again and again until I was so tired Mm -hmm. that I had nothing left for the people I love the most. But I learned the Enneagram. And I learned a lot from the Enneagram and a lot from the people who went before me in teaching. And what I now do is I walk toward another person and I think, why am I walking toward this person? And what, if anything, do I expect to get in return? And then the third question is, does the other person want my help? And where I ended up with what is mine to do is because I helped a lot of people who didn't want my help. I did a lot of things that were not mine to do because I was trying to manage feeling. Mm -hmm. Now, since we're talking about twos, we can't do this around all the numbers, but it's an example. And it's all in the book. The third book, it's all there, the journey toward wholeness. But twos, even though we're in the, if you're in the feeling triad, that means your feelings are messed up. And if you're in the thinking triad, that means your thinking's messed up. Mm -hmm. And if you're in the doing triad, that means your doing is messed up. Mm -hmm. So feeling triad, twos, have lots and lots of feelings, but they're not their own. I pick up on other people's feelings all day. And if they're uncomfortable, then I do something to try to fix my feelings that I've picked up from them, which would also fix theirs. It looks so lovely to be helpful. And it's so not that lovely when it's not yours to do, which is where what is mine to do comes from. Mm, Absolutely. And as we were getting on, we were talking about how Um, feelings types can, you know, we have to assess whether they're safe sometimes to other types. And that was a good example you just gave is if it's misdirected, that doesn't feel safe to other types. So I love that you're reminding our twos, threes, and fours out there, you know, doing your work and assessing if it's yours to do will breed so much peace in your life. Right. 
And it's very, very difficult for fours mm. because their feelings are so intense mm. and they're doing repressed. So fours get to feel and think about their feelings and then feel some more and then think about those feelings. And so where that leaves them is they don't like average feelings. They're really great with really sad feelings or really happy feelings, but they don't like anything that's average. So in relationships, fours intensify, hoping that you will intensify so that there will be more of all that in the relationship. And that's beautiful in moments, but it's not sustainable. No, no, it isn't sustainable. And um, let's see, let's pick, you want me to do your number or you want me to pick another one? Uh, sure, you can do mine. Thank okay. You. So um, you take in information with thinking, but then you want to do something with that. Now, the fact that you're feeling repressed doesn't mean that you don't have feelings. It does mean that you live pretty much with a half range of feelings when you're in average space. Mm -hmm. And it's the happy half. And you have to really be called, inspired, pulled into feelings that are below the happy line. Now, every everything we're saying is because of how you see, how you meaning all of us. Mm -hmm. Everything is about how we see. Your Enneagram number is determined by how you see. And the trick is you can never change that. You can change what you do with how you see, but you can never change how you see. So if we're going to have balance, we have to manage our dominant center and we have to enable or bring up our repressed center. And stance work identifies your repressed center and is about bringing up that center. Because in Enneagram work, you don't push down what's dominant. You bring up what is repressed. And what we're looking for is balance. All of the Enneagram is about balance. All of it. If, if, that's, if somebody said, what's the one word? It's balance. I love that you said that. And so it's just about, I need to bring up thinking. I need to think about my schedule. I need to think about what I can do. I need to think about what's mine to do instead of just following my feelings. So I spend my life, actually, my life's work saying, here's some tools mm -hmm. so that you can help relationships work. I've done a lot of work with stances and I still have to work it every day because I still would prefer to just do what I've always done and use feeling and doing. And everybody thinks those top two, whatever they are for you, got you. It's like that got me this far. Why do I have to do that thing? Mm -hmm. And you do because you can't make good decisions if you don't. You can't be good in relationship if you don't. Mm -hmm. You can't do your part in a relationship if you don't. We need all three. And well, and pain's the only teacher. Mm -hmm. Richard Rohr, who's my mentor and teacher, Father Richard Rohr, says, <laughs> Success has nothing to teach you after the age of 35. Suzanne Stabile said, I cannot tell you one single lesson I learned that has been important for my life that didn't come from some pain. Not one. So important. People run from it. And I know about running. Yeah. You're um, real good at it. I'm really good at running. Yeah, you are. Even today I did. And then I came right back. It took <laughs> yeah. me about 10 minutes. And then I came back and I said yeah. to my family, my instinct is to run. In fact, a lot farther than I did. Yeah. But, but I need to come back. <laughs> so Exactly. So. It's like that's you. You have a gift, you know, in the Enneagram world and in Enneagram work, your gift is your problem. And it's a gift to be able to reframe negatives into a positive. And it's a problem to be able to reframe negatives into a positive. I had Joel and I had a guest on our podcast 
who is a seven, and she had hosted me at Baylor University when I taught there for a number of years, a couple of times a year. And um, she came on the podcast and she and Joel were chatting and it it was right, I don't know, early in the year, maybe February. And uh, she said, Joel, I have a question for you. And, uh, you know, it's hard to hang on to your role in a podcast when you're with two sevens. Um, So I was observing. And the question was, when you get together with your family at Christmas, having been together with them in November, do you remember Thanksgiving the same way they did? And he said, you know, I never have. I've That has been really weird to me that they talk about things I don't remember. And Leanne said, me too. And she said, but I haven't figured out. She said, I think that we reframe things so fast. What we remember is our reframing and not what really happened. That's fascinating. And there are eight other numbers who cannot do that. For better and for worse. Absolutely. Fascinating. And it's just slowing down to notice the people around you who can't do your thing because I think we all expect it. We're like, don't you do this like me? And in marriage, it's really a big one because you're like, how come you can't move in my way, in my form? And I don't know if you feel this, but I feel that when I'm with my husband and I'm really leaning in and like we said, open hands to God, I feel like I'm invited into his way of looking at the world and that it opens me up in a bigger way. And I know it's hard and it's at times just terrible, but I think the beauty comes from me saying sometimes at least on a good day, you know, this is really cool that I can see the world, not just in my limited way, but in your way, which Mm -hmm. does begin to, you know, become expansive for me. Yeah. You know, I think a really good practice. um, And I actually picked this up at a musical, Will Rogers Follies. It was fascinating really talented folks. Anyway, years this years ago. I'm getting old. Um, Will Rogers, I won't say it like he said it, but he essentially said, you have to get around behind somebody and see what they see in order to be in relationship with them. And I have encouraged couples to literally have each of them at times just move around and stand behind your partner or your spouse and say to them, now tell me what you see. And have them do the same with you. And it's fascinating. And then you can say when there's a problem with parenting, okay, I'm going to figuratively stand behind you. I want you to tell me what you saw. And then I want you to stand behind me so I can tell you what I saw. And then what we learn is that if, if we were all lined up on a fence looking through a hole in the fence, we would not all see the same thing. And the Enneagram, if defined, which I find an elevator speech to be impossible, unless I'm, you know, it's caught between two floors or something. Literally. Yeah. But um, it's just about nine different ways of seeing. And it's just that you can't change how you see, but you can change what you do with how you see. And you can learn to recognize value in the other eight ways of seeing. Which is why community is so great. Oh, man. You know, our byline, the Micah Center, which is our center here in Dallas, is uh, a place for solitary work that can't be done alone because you won't do it alone. You know, all the promises we make, it's Lent. Man, people have made all kinds of promises. Uh And if they're not in community and they don't have accountability, they're not going to keep them. 
doing the work on our own completely, it just doesn't make sense in any of the centers. So I love that you're reminding us we need community, even those like me who did kind of burn out on social for a while and then have to kind of crawl back to it in healthy ways. Can you explain to us how we can balance our stances? You are in the stance you're in always. So you're never not in the assertive or the aggressive stance. You're always there. So, and and that's because it, it you are not doing repress. And that's the definition of the withdrawing stance. It's not that they withdraw. It's that they don't do. And therefore, they are the withdrawing. Do you see what I'm saying? I do, that I can right? say I want to withdraw, but that doesn't mean I've crossed over and become no. balanced into the withdrawing no. stance. Okay. No, there is no crossing over. All the balance happens in your own stance. Mm. So you have to learn to balance thinking, feeling, and doing in your own stance, which means you get to withdraw sometimes. We all do, but that doesn't put you in that stance. That means you're in the aggressive stance and you have withdrawn. And the reason that's a good thing but we're going to use a different number. Let's use eight. All right. Now here's where you, what you're saying is accurate. The language is just inaccurate. So eights, the number that they go to in security is two, but the number they go to in stress is five. And so the language is that when eights manage anger and discomfort well, even if they've behaved badly, they move to five on the Enneagram. Just for a time. You don't become a five. You just take on energy from five. And everybody needs to know you can't take care of yourself without the number you go to in stress. So celebrate. Part of your book too. So that's why we also need that. It's all there. Yep. And when you move, when when eights move to five, they have withdrawn and they reevaluate themselves and think about what happened instead of keeping going and going and going because they're doing dominant, right? So they have stopped and gone home for a little bit are gone to their office. And when they come back, they've regrouped, but they stayed in their same stance the whole time. See that. Okay. See that? Because as a seven, you go to one in stress. I spend a lot and of time in one. You go to five in security. And so when you're secure, you do tend to be more comfortable pulling back a little. And when you're stressed, then you do. You do stuff. But all in the aggressive stance. And so as listeners are thinking that through with us, they can remember we didn't say feeling. And so there's where it comes in to say as a seven, you're going to have to say, I'm going to have to add in some feeling because here I am doing and thinking. And yeah, of course, focusing all day long on writing projects. My husband can compliment me on that uh, and be, whoa, that's great because he's a one. So he's like, I'm doing and doing, and then I'm going to seven and doing and doing. And so great. He loves that he can see that. But what we both know is missing there unless we're really choosing it is for the feeling. Right. And for you, It's really hard to get to them because you have no line on the Enneagram that connects you to feeling. And I have no line on the Enneagram that connects me to thinking. Mm -hmm. And we're the only two numbers that struggle with that. Mm -hmm. So everybody who's listening should really feel sorry for us. (laughs) But look how much work we've both done in that. that (laughs) You have written all these books that are so thoughtful and impressing me as a thinking type. And I know I've studied emotionally focused couples therapy probably before I knew Enneagram, probably because I knew I had a deficit. (laughs) There you go. Exactly. That's exactly it. But that deficit that you're talking about is the purest part of you. Don't forget that. So when I think... 
It's good thinking. Really good. Oh my gosh. That's making so much sense. Yeah. And when, when uh, doing repressed people do something, they get it done and it's done well and it's great. Oh yeah. It's It's just getting them to do. Yes. Oh my goodness. Those fours, fives, and nines, when they get stuff done, is it? It's crazy good. Yep. No way. This is so helpful to hear this. And we love just getting this off Suzanne. And I think a lot of our list already adore you. And some are just wondering, how do I find you in the best ways? Because we know when we type in Suzanne Stabile, we're going to get something, but where are the best ways to get more of your teaching? Lifeinthetrinityministry.com. And your book is available, your books, I should say, yeah. on Amazon and yeah. also at Life in the Trinity, right? Right. And most booksellers. And um, I would really encourage people to, if you're just starting this work in relationships, the journey, the third book is great, the blue one, but the green one is a good place to start because it's do one, two, three, four, five, do these things. (laughs) And it's really helpful, I think. Um, Secondly, uh, the table is a subscription service that we have. And it's very reasonably priced. I think it's $15 a month. And uh, I teach on the table and Joe teaches and we have other people who come in and teach on the table. So it's really, we keep new content going to the table all the time. So that would be a good, good thing too. Yeah, that's really good to know. This is such a gift to us all. Thank you so much for this wealth of knowledge and heart space. Oh my gosh. Thank you, Suzanne. You bet. Thanks for having me. And I hope everybody works hard at marriage and doesn't consider their successes to be luck. Oh my goodness, that was such a journey together. I'm so glad because we really got to just sit and learn and hopefully you, like me, got to really grab something meaningful. We always ask you to try to grab one thing for you to be pondering, for you to be adjusting, for you to be just pre-contemplating whatever it is for you to just help you to know that you are doing your work and that you are really intentionally going for it. But as we heard today, going for it with presence as much as possible so that you're not running ahead of yourself or lagging behind. It's your pace. And Suzanne's books are in the show notes for you. Her table membership, all of that is linked in the show notes. And I hope that you have such a wonderful day. Thank you so much for doing beautiful work in your life because it does expand and we do feel it when there's more love out there. Okay. Bye-bye. Thank you again for listening with us. It was so wonderful to have you. I love knowing we're doing this journey together, not perfectly, but with love, grace, and hopefully some fun too. If you love today's episode, make sure you leave us a five-star review at Apple Podcast or Spotify so others can find it too. Visit our show notes so you can get all the links from today's show, as well as EnneagramAndMarriage.com, the Instagram, the Facebook, and all over the place. Make sure you spread the word. Love living intentionally with you. Bye-bye.